when you have a multitude of influences there, well, then what's the solution? And the solution is transparency. If you have set pay bands and set criteria for how those pay bands are met, if you have transparency around that, if you level set, that's really important. We saw Salesforce had actually internal employees who advocated for pay transparency and the level set. And they did that. When they did that, they saw that, yes, there was a pay gap internally. And they constantly have to reassess that on an ongoing basis because it doesn't automatically get solved and everything's great. As you bring in new employees, as you're doing more promotions, you have to constantly evaluate that. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast, Sid Finkelstein here, and you are listening to episode number 141. My guest is Christy Wallace, who is the former CEO of Elevate Network. What is Elevate? This is a networking group. A networking group is almost too small a way to describe it because they have so many activities focused on women and especially women in the workforce and how to support women in a variety of different ways. They've got so many different activities. You know, they're not the only one out there, I think, that does this, but I've just been very impressed with their work. They have sessions on managing your compensation, becoming a more confident negotiator, how to build a personal brand, how to start and succeed as an entrepreneur, how to manage your personal finances, mental health and managing work during COVID-19, becoming and finding allies for women of color. It's a fascinating organization. It was founded in 1997 as 85 Broads. (laughs) It is now the largest community of women at work and involves people in many, many different industries at many, many different levels as well. I heard about Elevate Network, I guess informally just over the years, but then also former student of mine who suggested when I asked him for some interesting, fascinating potential podcast guests, and he mentioned to me, well, you got to talk to Christy, Christy Wallace, who at that time was the CEO of Elevate Network. And I thought, well, this is something I care about a lot. This is something that my students care about a lot. What can we learn? What could we share? Elevate Network's mission is really about closing the gender achievement gap in business by providing professional women with a global community to lean on and to learn from. And they have many, many activities. She was the CEO for, oh, a bunch of years and just stepped down in July of 2022. In this episode, she and I talk about the gender pay gap. It's something like 82% now. Think about that for a minute, that women on average get paid 82% as much as men for the same type of job, for the same job sometimes. It's infuriating. It's outrageous. And I'm not happy about it to hear that, to know that. And what could be done? And what are the efforts? What are the energies? And Elevate, the Elevate Network is certainly part of that. I also asked Christy, what's your message for men? What can men do? How should men think about these efforts to try to uh, level the playing field? And how can men support that? I know at Tuck Business School, we've had a lot of energy, a lot of interest around allies and men as allies, which I think is a powerful notion and very, very uh, helpful. Uh, And I asked her about that as well. Chrissy herself has an interesting background. She's been an entrepreneur. She's been a senior executive. She was with a startup. And over time, she moved to having this kind of broad-based impact on many, many women. This episode is in, I guess, in keeping with one of the themes 
really, of the SIDCAST for a long period of time, which is to highlight powerful, influential women leaders just because, well, first of all, that's interesting. Second of all, I learn a lot from these conversations, and I know, of course, you do as well. The audience does as well. But third, also, frankly, to share these role models with lots of other people, because I think that's important. It's important to see it. It's important to learn from it. And we've had, just in this season as well, several other people, CEOs and former CEOs, this season, season four, started off early on with Shelley Zalis, who is the CEO of the Female Quotient, absolute powerhouse of a leader who also is working incredibly hard to try to elevate the position of women, the opportunities for women at work. So there's a lot of energy. We know there's a huge need. Christy Wallace just has a wealth of experience in this episode, and I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with her. Christy Wallace on the SIDCAST. Welcome to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein, and it's a pleasure for me to welcome Christy Wallace as my guest today. Hi, Christy. Hello. Thanks for having me here. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation. We were introduced by Jacques-Philippe Piverger, who's a former student of mine and someone in your network as well, really a great person and really successful in all the different things he does. And I asked him, who do you know that's really interesting, doing interesting work? And he said, well, you know, Christy Wallace. And I said, yes, let's talk to Christy. That would be great. So there's a lot to talk about. Your background, the stuff you've done, your career, your journey. I actually want to start with what you're doing now, which is the Elevate Network. So maybe you could share a little bit, but first of all, what is it? What is the Elevate Network? Elevate Network is the largest community of women in the workplace across industry, function, geography, and career stage. And the reason for our being, our purpose is to really change the face of business. We want to create a workplace where all people can succeed and thrive and achieve their goals, however they define them. It's by creating this community. It's about that collective action, that support and advice that we all need to break down those barriers, to learn and to succeed. So it's a community, but could you share some examples of the types of things that you do or organize that's enabled you to become you know, this influential, this biggest group of this nature? There's four main ways in which our community comes together. One is in hyper-local communities. So we have 40 chapters around the world. And that's focused on really leaning into the dynamic nature and industries within that local community. So if it's LA, San Francisco, Dubai, London, New York, making those in-person connections now that we're getting back to in-person with your network in that city. We also have our weekly roundtables. So roundtables are really focused on putting our community first. We always have an expert who tees up the conversation on a specific topic, but then we take it into smaller breakout rooms. So this is where you're really going to grow your network here. Each week you're going to meet different people, all at a similar career stage, where you take that topic and you make it specific to your own life and situation. So it's a great way to not just be spoken to, and then you walk away and life gets busy and you never take action. But to get actionable advice in the moment, most impactful hour of your week. So we do that for rising leaders, executives, business owners. And then we also run roundtables based on intersectional identity, which is where we create safe spaces to support women, us in the workforce. And if it's Black women, LGBTQAI, seasoned professionals and beyond. Third program is our squads program. So this goes deeper. This is a 12-week-long peer mentoring program. It's about half an hour a week for those 12 weeks. When you're with the same group of individuals, that depth of connection that helps you to pursue your goals, overcome your challenges, 
and really make progress towards your career and your life. And then the final thing we do is mobilize women. And mobilize women is our summit we post every summer. And that's around how we collectively change the workforce in the world. It's where we host the topics that are top of mind for our community, if it's mental health in the workplace, if it's women and politics, and then use that as a framework for the actions we can take every day following to really be proactive in driving change. You think about women in the workforce research shows, there's a Harvard Business Review article that said women need both a depth of network and a breadth of network in order to reach senior leadership. And we think about the programs we're creating. It's going to be the regional events and the roundtables that are really connecting you to that breadth of network, the 250,000 women in our community. We're going to be meeting a lot of people. And then the squads is that, that personal board of advisors, those people that you really build deeper connections with who can role play that pay conversation, who can help you prepare for that interview, give you that advice on how to get land that first speaking gig. Whatever your goals and challenges are, you've got someone in your corner. Wow. I mean, that sounds great. I'm thinking about my daughter, who is a global PR manager in a global tech firm and thinking, boy, these are some resources that she could find really helpful, especially at this, you know, she's young at this stage of career. Absolutely. As we progress in our careers, oftentimes we have networks throughout our lives. People you go to school with and maybe Mm -hmm. you are in you meet at the gym or you go to the running club or whatever it may be, that, that whole network mapping of you know, all the different places in which we have connections. But as we go throughout our career, oftentimes the people within our network might not have the expertise or the insights that we need. So as I was going through my career, a lot of my friends from school maybe were in a different industry or just didn't have the same context in terms of career progression. And so I actually joined Elevate Network probably 15 years ago. I was a new manager for a sales team. I felt completely unprepared for it. It was a fast growing tech startup. And I joined Elevate because I needed that type of advice and support to navigate that situation. And I stayed within Elevate when I was on the founding team of a company where it was a completely different situation and looking to connect with potential partners or customers. So the power of having that fluidity of network the breadth of it, where you can always find what you're looking for. It's really important that we all have that. So you were, I guess, a member of the community, had nothing to do with running Elevate originally. How did that happen, this kind of shift from doing what you were doing before to actually becoming a senior executive and now being the CEO? Well, it sounds a bit cliche, but networking. And I think networking gets a bad rap. It's a word that can be overused and maybe feels transactional or dirty. It's community building. It's meeting other people and being inspired by them, learning from them. It is something that's central to what we need throughout our lives. But for me personally, I was part of a startup, founding team of a startup, and I loved it. And kind of hit a point post, I guess, Series A, where it just, I don't know, it wasn't getting me out of bed in the morning. I'd come to this point in my career where I was looking for more purpose, around something that I felt a deeper connection to. And so it's at that point that I decided to leave that company. And I was, when I'm a listening tour, I was trying to figure out, all right, what do I want to do next? Feels overwhelming at times when there's, yeah, I can work in any size company, any industry, any function. So I went on a listening tour. I talked to a bunch of people in my network. What did they like about what they did? What was the typical day like? And as part of that listening tour, I met with this woman, Allie McDonald, who at the time had been president of 
Elevate Network, which was formerly 85 Broads. And as I'm talking to Allie, Allie said, you know what? You should come work for us. And I had met her because I'd been part of the network. And so I was like, interesting. And then the next morning I had breakfast with Sally Projects, who is the majority owner of the organization. And so I said, oh yeah, you should come work for us. There you have it. I mean, I ended up going and joining Elevate just through the power of meeting people, having those conversations, building that trust and rapport. Eight years later, I'm so proud of what we've been able to do. We've grown the business exponentially. I was leveraged, you know, both virtual technology, but also the ability to scale our in-person offering to meet our customer where she is. Nature business, your customer is always changing as the world's changing. So being able to be dynamic, really listen to her and to provide the best benefits she needs has been something I'm really proud of. So the business model actually for Elevate, it's a for-profit business? We are a for-profit business and we're a certified B corporation. So for those, I'm sure many of us have started to hear more about B Corps. It's Eileen Fisher, Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, Athleta, Tom's, Allbirds. I mean, there's a host of companies that are focused on business and business that's growing, that's scaling, that's doing amazing things, but also multiple stakeholders. So not just how do you make profits for your shareholders, but how we become a great place to work for our employees, how we're good for the environment, we're good for our local communities. Look at your supply chain. You look at all aspects of your business to really hold yourself accountable to building a business that does better for all stakeholders. And Elevate is proud to be a B Corp. The B Corp movement is still, I mean, relatively speaking, it's small, but it's becoming more and more influential. I know my MBA students are all over it, really value it and look at it as something to aspire to. But more generally, this idea of being stakeholder focused, meaning not just shareholder focused, if you're a publicly traded company or owner focused, if you're a private company, it's having its moment in America and we'll see what's going to happen with it. I mean, Europe has been ahead, I think, of us for a long, long time in terms of understanding and appreciating multiple purposes of a corporation, if you want to say that. And maybe you remember, probably you do remember the Business Roundtable came out with this statement, maybe what, two, three years ago? Early 2019, I think, like with the revised statement of purpose, so that exactly what you're talking about. And then obviously COVID hit, you know, around a year later. And so there had been a lot of talk around the business roundtable and businesses being more of a force for good. I think the overarching conversation might have been superseded with COVID and everything else that's happened in the last two years. But the core principles of it, I think, have become mm-hmm. even more relevant because we saw companies really having to think about their employees' well-being, their mental health, their physical health, where they were working. I always saw employers think more about the world and what's happening in our world. If it anti-racism, if you're talking about what's happening in Ukraine, you're talking about legislation that's happening in Florida or Texas around gay and trans rights or around women's reproductive health. And so we've seen definitely during this time companies who have had to really make a shift in how they show up for employees, how they show up in the world. Even looking at their supply chain, as we've seen that disrupted, there's been a lot coming out around environmental impact, increasingly studies and and what the urgency there. In my perspective, that initial business roundtable statement feels to be a bit superseded by what's happened the past two years. I don't think progress has stalled because companies have really taken big steps forward on a multitude of levels in how they just change the nature of business. COVID changed so much for so many organizations and people. When you have a crisis, a truly global crisis like that, 
it's almost like a litmus test on whether you really believe in any of these new, call them new, they're not new, they're kind of old principles. Business used to be more like this, more stakeholder focused up until probably the 1960s when the transition started to occur to what most listeners grew up with and even learned in school, which is all about maximizing shareholder value, which is now seeing that pendulum as we're talking about shift a little bit. But when you have this type of crisis, this is not the time to experiment with new models. This is not the time to start worrying about all these stakeholders. We got to worry about the survival of our company. You could see that, or you could see the opposite. And I'm going to ask you what your sense is and what you're seeing from clients and from your community. But the opposite is, wow, you know, we've been talking about it, maybe a little bit in the abstract, but it cannot get any more real than this. And you were kind of going in that direction a little bit as well. What are you seeing actually from companies? And this is something I get asked a lot about. The stakeholder capitalism idea sounds good. Is it just PR or is there some need to it? Is it going to change how organizations really operate? So I'm happy to share what I've seen. And then Sid, I would love to hear more about what you're hearing from your students too. That is our future and they'll be driving business of the future. And so I'm really curious what your students are saying, but I've seen, so personally, as a leader myself, I recognize that the greatest strength for us as a business is our employees. They're driving the day-to-day, interacting with our customers, helping to deliver on the program, the offering. And it was really important to me to support our employees during this time. I had some who were caregivers, some who were sheltering in place alone, many who were navigating this time of uncertainty and looking for some certainty for me, from the world. And so really leaned into them. Things that we did, we have community hours internally as a way to kind of make space for how we're all feeling. You know, when the Brianna Taylor verdict came out, we shut down the office to just give people space to process. We started uh, experimenting with a four-day work week as a way to also kind of help our team have some space to for themselves and to get the self-care that they need. And all of those things have resulted in a higher retention, more employee engagement, more creativity. They've really shown up in so many different ways. And that's helped our business to continue to thrive and grow during this time. We're a smaller business, easier to kind of be agile in that way. But what I've heard from our community, uh, many who work for large multinational companies, is that it had been difficult during the pandemic and then moving forward to once the companies not address what's happening in the world. Talking about Black Lives Matter and social unrest, I mean, when you show up at a town hall in your company and their leader doesn't acknowledge that Mm -hmm. they're not trying to connect with you on what's impacting you day to day, that for many employees, they felt very unseen and unheard. Or when companies are making blanket policies around work from home and creating more boundaries and constructs or going into the the office without engaging employees in that conversation and understanding where they are, then it feels, again, like you're working for an organization that doesn't prioritize you, doesn't care about your needs, that doesn't care about your identity and what you're going through. Before the pandemic, we also saw, obviously, we mentioned the business roundtable. There's more employee activism. So employees were starting to come together to use their voice. Uh, We saw leaders taking a stand on redefining leadership and leadership with more purpose and impact. That has been a big conversation within the Elevate community is how do the leaders in our community step up more? And then how do the employees within organizations either find a voice to advocate for what they need? or find an employer who really values them. There's a lot that you just said that I'm thinking of in various ways. So just the word activist. I was talking to someone the other day 
who's very concerned about climate change. I won't say everybody is, but almost everybody is. And he's advocating a billion activists. I'm not sure how that's going to happen, but the idea is that each of us individually do have some degree of agency, some power, some influence. There's a lot of variations. Some do not, but many do. If the billion people speak up and start talking and caring and asking, some more progress perhaps could be made than what's been made to date. I mean, it remains to be seen that's not happened yet, but it, it highlights kind of the individual level of activism. I mean, maybe that's happened, you know, Greta Thunberg, I think her name was, right? This young woman from Sweden. It was one such person, got a lot of publicity, but it's not about being the one that gets in all the newspapers. That's great because of the recognition that happens, but just doing it on a very micro level with your own family, your own friends and your own co-workers. It's actually a very exciting notion that he shared with me. I don't know how it's going to play out and how to make it happen exactly. But as I think about it, that's what a social movement is. I'll give you like three small examples of this. I have a son and when he was in fifth grade, he ran for student council. On, sorry, it's only thinking back about his sign. He ran for student council on a platform of eliminating plastic silverware in the cafeteria. Yeah. And he won as president of his class. But as a fifth grader, he cared about that. He saw that this every day and he wanted it to change. I had an employee who came to work one day with a composting bin and said, oh, let's just start composting the office. Said, Why not? And then she would take it with her to get rid of it. And when it got full, she also brought in hand soap. So we weren't using so much plastic, but it was just an employee within a workplace who said, okay, what are the opportunities here to do different? I also heard a story from a leader at Patagonia who was sharing, they were making a transition within their supply chain from one source of cotton to a different source of cotton, which would be all organic. They received pushback from the team. They said, this is a lot of work. We're going to have to completely change up our supply chain, our whole process. Now the cotton we get is going to be different. It's going to take more processing time. We're going to have to rethink all of this. So what they did is they took the team and they put them onto a bus or, you know, transport and they went to the first field. The first field where they're currently sourcing materials from, there was no birds, no bugs, just cotton. And the chain's like, okay, great. And so then they went to the, the other field where they wanted to start sourcing organic, different environment. And there were birds and there were bees and butterflies. And the team just looked at that and said, okay, we're all in. Let's do this. We will make the changes. We are all fully invested in this. And so those are just small ways, I think, where you, know, you talk about this activism and it's what speaks to you. What are the issues you care about? And how do we have that voice and that influence within our family, within our school, within our workplace, where we can really impact change. And I think the power of activism is collective activism, where when you bring in that compost bin, then maybe those around you are like, oh, I hadn't really thought known composting was so easy. I hadn't thought about it. Maybe I'll start doing that at my home, or maybe I'll advocate for it in my next workplace to do that. And it's that, that ripple effect of how is one person using their voice, even the smallest things can really start to create that collective action and change. I mean, there's a multiplier effect that comes from actually any behavior, including bad behavior. So why not take advantage of good behavior for positive activism? One of my students now graduated a couple of years ago. She worked for a very large multinational that espouses and continues to talk a lot about ESG, about environmental concerns, about sustainability. And they have that general reputation. But what she discovered in this particular instance is that there's an ingredient they were using for a product that was causing some damage to the environment where it was being harvested. And she worked on coming up with an alternative that would have cost a little bit more. And what she discovered is that was a no-go. 
great idea, but that's going to hit our KPI is going to hit our numbers. And of course, we all understand that, except she didn't because they had sold her in a sense on that job because of what they stood for. And then what she discovered is, at least in this one case, and that's not to disparage the entire company, maybe it's just one case or very few cases, isolated cases. But in this case, it wasn't what she was led to believe. And she ended up leaving. And the cost to a company, to any organization, when you have this kind of high-powered, amazing talent, you spend a lot of time and energy to try to bring in in the first place. This all happened before the great resignation. So it's even worse or more challenging now. The cost is high. And I've found that there's just zero tolerance, because you asked me about my students, zero tolerance among, well, millennials and maybe Gen Z is in the same category. Very, very little tolerance to organizations or leaders that say one thing and do another. And, you know, I'm a baby boomer. I can't say I liked it. But that was business as usual. We just dealt with it. They're not dealing with it. They're fighting it. They're not accepting it. They're walking with their feet. And that will have huge implications, I think, throughout the economy. Huge ripple effects. I agree. I mean, the nature of business itself is changing rapidly. And when you think about, I could be off on this number, but it's something 99% of all, 1% of businesses are that Fortune 500 or public companies. And then there's 99% that employ 50% of the workforce instead hold me accountable if I'm totally getting these numbers wrong. But the point is that there's a number of employers out there and increasingly so we've got technology and new industries and innovations and a lot that's changing happening. And so the workforce has a different landscape to look toward. Even when I graduated college 20 plus years ago, it still felt at that time very much like me, an accountant, a lawyer, a teacher. And now it's more dynamic. It's easier to find out information about these companies, to connect with them. With remote working, it's easier to work anywhere for any company. So the landscape has changed so much. And I agree with you, if employers are going to lead with a message, you better be able to back that up. And most, maybe the vast majority of employment growth comes from small and medium-sized companies, not the giant companies, even though Amazon and Walmart keep hiring crazy numbers of people. But in the scheme of things, there's only a few of those. And there are tens of thousands of smaller companies that are hiring in small numbers, but you just multiply it out. And in a smaller organization, you do have, going back to this activist idea, you do have the opportunity to have that impact. It's easier to imagine it in a smaller organization that's not quite as set in its ways, let's say. And that is probably more innovative because they're not all startups, of course, but they're probably more innovative in that they're smaller and they need to be agile. They need to adjust. They're growing. So it's actually a pretty exciting notion when you think about that. I have a feeling I'm reflecting now in our conversation, thinking about me. If you think that you're just one small part of this giant ecosystem and world and you say, well, what difference can it make what I do if I recycle, if I compost, I don't know, whatever it happens to be, if I walk to work rather than drive or bicycle to work. And you think you're just one little guy, you know, the place the world is gigantic and some people care, but a lot of people don't or cannot or cannot afford to care. And, all. and then you don't do it. You don't do it. But in fact, I think if people believe that they actually had an opportunity to have an impact, that it does make a difference, even you as one individual could make a difference. I think that would be like a big thing. I think that would be a really big thing. Just to validate that even more, I mean, it's back to why I do what I do, right? Networking, mm. community building. I mean, we're human in the sense it's a solitary being, and yet we can't live and thrive without one another. When you talk about that, what's it matter if I do this one thing? Well, it matters if your kids see it and they learn from that. It matters if as an educator and a teacher that comes through to your students, it matters as a leader in an organization or a manager that you're setting an example for others and how they will eventually lead or as a peer within an organization. 
showing that we can stand up for our principles or what we care about and helping to inspire others. And so each action, while it may feel like, what's it matter if I bike to work? Well, it matters to some people who are driving in the car and see you and say, oh, wow, that's a good idea. I should start doing that or to your students who see it, who think that's great. That's something I want to do as well. And then now we have more people biking to work. You mentioned earlier that ripple effect and I think everything that we do, it does impact other people in small and big ways. And so I encourage the listeners, yeah, lead with your values, right? When we might not all care about the environment, I hope you do, but that may not be top of mind. We may care about paid leave or care about after-school programs for kids or care about more exclusion and belonging in your workforce. But we don't have to sit around and wait for someone else to solve that. We can each take an action every day to help lead the way and to create that change we see. I mean, it's a very powerful thing when you feel like you can have an impact. It is actually one of the most important criteria for a job, whether people enjoy and stay on a job, if they feel like they have an impact, a potential impact on something they care about. That's one of the criteria that define what a great job is. So now I'm going to ask you some kind of crazy, maybe dumb questions, but it just occurs to me as we're talking and given your the work and your experience in Elevate. So how are women different than men in the workforce? What's different? And of course, let's keep it as a naive question. I don't need all the qualifiers to explain why. Of course, I know there's plenty of differences, but I just want to try to get a little deeper on this. Women, we're not just like one bucket of Correct. homogeneous, like the same thing. We're all <laughs> very different. And so what women bring to the workplace is diversity. And it's not just white women. We need Black women and lesbian, Indigenous, Latina. We need that diversity of thought, of experience, of background. And so what we've seen today is women as a whole, and we are, you know, and it's easy to categorize the gender bucket, are underrepresented in positions of leadership and receiving funding and government and the boardroom and across the board. And what we seek and what I seek when I seek our business and world should seek is more diversity in all of those places. So, of course, we want to see men of color, we want to see women and women of all different backgrounds. What that brings is just... I think most people recognize, not everyone, but most people recognize the power of diversity and the benefits and the upside. And there have been a lot of studies to demonstrate that you actually make better decisions when you have more diverse points of view that are part of that decision-making process. But do women work differently? It's such a mass generalization. But I'm just curious what you think, because you're running an organization that is for women. There are different needs for women or anyone else who's not who has to deal with discrimination or doesn't have the same level of equality. I've got all that. But day to day, are there differences that you've seen or noticed or people talk about? Research shows that women are more collaborative, we're more customer focused, we're more risk averse in situations where that that can be very beneficial. Better communicators. There's a whole host of amazing things that women bring to business. I personally think it's nuanced. There's a whole spectrum of are you female identifying, but maybe bring some more quote unquote masculine traits. It just because you identify as woman doesn't mean you are customer focused. But big picture is that there's more vulnerability. There's more all of those things customer focused. These are really good assets, if you will, for leaders and just for getting the job done. And now the reverse, which is, I was talking to someone the other day who is Latina or Hispanic, as she said, and she's from Colombia, the country, Colombia. And she said something, and of course, I know this from research in other areas and just living, but the Hispanic community, the majority looks at a minority and they're all the same. They're not differentiated. And so there is something called 
Hispanic community or Latina or Latin community. But in fact, when you go and look or you're in that group, you discover it's kind of obvious. Well, there's people from Colombia, there's people from Cuba, there's people from Mexico, there's people from Argentina, from Brazil. And that's just the country, let alone all the other dimensions that people vary in. In fact, the individual differences in the different categories are much more complicated, but the majority tends to look at people in a minority group as the same. What can we do about that? Because I think that's detrimental for both sides, for the majority to not appreciate what's there and different talent, different experiences, different backgrounds, different histories, but also for people that are in that minority who don't want to be staffed with this one label, which would include the label being a woman manager, a woman executive. As you're talking about that, it was reminding me of In the Heights, which is a Lin-Manuel Miranda production and they came out with the movie, which is since. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. But there was a discussion around that and the representation within the film that many felt was not as representative of the full unique dimensions and identities reflected within Washington Heights. And so there is like Afro-Latina was not represented in the film the way that it is within those communities. And that's just one example, as you were talking about the nuances of who's in this community, what are the different dimensions and backgrounds? Like, how do we go deeper? Because we, I think holistically what happens in business and in the world is it's very easy for us to create bigger categories. Men versus women, Black, Latina, Asian, American, AAPI. That feels good for us. Or let's group it all people of color. And that's a big group. But that's not really talking about both religion, their culture, the traditions they grew up with, the perspectives that they've gained through that identity. And it is important that we break that down. One of my colleagues, Marisela, is from El Salvador. So she grew up in El Salvador in the midst of a war. And that is her lived experience, El Salvador, where it's a very patriarchal culture and society. And then she came to the United States and it was jarring for her because she had been one of everybody in El Salvador. And then in the U.S., suddenly she's now a person of color. She's Latina, but she's Latina from El Salvador and not from Puerto Rico or from Colombia. And it's very different experiences, different ways of communicating, different ways of living. And so to answer your point or your question about how do we do better to identify that, I think it's giving people the space to really show up. And we talked about this with the difference between men and women as leaders. And we have within business constructs of what a leader looks like, what an employee looks like in terms of their behaviors, the ways that they communicate, the ways that they should dress or look. And when we try and create these boxes that everyone has to fit into, we're all adapting to some structure that doesn't really fit us and our identity and we're not really our true selves. So I think for companies, you know, creating space for people to really show up as themselves, I think going beyond the performative, okay, I'm in February, let's talk about Black History Month. Now it's large, it's Women's History Month. Now it's April. And how do you create those of belonging every day within your workplace? Certain things that we've seen employers do. You know, at Accenture, they were having town halls referring to the forefront of what's happening outside of those walls of their workplace to create a space for conversation within their teams and their community. At Elevate, we do a lot around that too. We have these community hours and we can talk about what we're going through. We have mental health channels. We have a lot within right. our site and elsewhere. But we really want it to be encouraged that you can show up as your true self and you can talk about that. But the key thing in all of this, and it doesn't work if we're not all listening. So however you identify, always just listening to someone else's stories, caring, asking questions is a key part of how we 
get a deeper understanding of who we work alongside, who's in our team, in our company, and then we better show up for them. And it's an ongoing journey. It's not going to solve it in one moment. And it's like, okay, my work is done here. I've got a book. You're like, nope, every day, <laughs> continuing to learn and to grow as humans, old humans in a very diverse and complex society. That's beautiful. There's a lot you've said that's so interesting. I think in multiple ways to take it, but maybe I'll say a couple of things. First, maybe this has to do with diversity and inclusion and the difference between the two. But there are certain characteristics or people that get hired or that you want to do whatever you want to do. But then where you could have as much diversity as, as you want on any dimension. But then what voice do they have? What power do they have? What ability do they have? to make a difference. And do they count, as you said? And that gets the inclusion side. So there's kind of like a practical point, maybe a bit of a philosophical point I want to make about identity at this part of our conversation. The practical point comes from my own research, uh, leaders that, in a sense, create leaders, leaders that really help other people get better in a book called Superbosses. And one of the things that these so-called superboss leaders do is that they customize how they work with each person in their team. And so you can show up and be who you are. You don't have to fit into pre-existing categories, which is kind of a lost cause if you think about that, because you're purposely eliminating some of the idiosyncrasies and individualities and creativities of people when you force people into different categories. But most companies still do that. But you can customize by starting with whoever you are and what you are, but not just what you are, but what you want and where you want to go and what you want to be. And actually, what motivates you? How do you like to work, especially today with work from home and hybrid back in the office? And a good leader will spend the time to get to know each person on her team and then customize how they work with each person. It's not a one size fits all. And I think that turns out to be a really effective management or leadership approach, really effective. And it generates, talk about talent retention, it generates huge loyalty. Imagine that your boss took that personal attention. And I've used this example in other contexts. Let's say you're my boss and you really want to know what's going on in Sid's head and what does he want? Well, actually, I want your job rather than thinking this guy's nuts. Well, if you want this job, well, here are some of the skill sets you're going to need, some of the capabilities you're going to need. And let's see if I could help you over the next I don't know, three years or two years or five years, put you into positions or opportunities that will enable you to enhance those skills. And when you do that, you've really shifted the conversation where not just talking, but caring about people, you actually, you're doing something very specific about that. So it's a pretty practical idea, I think, on how to go with whoever the person is and what they come with. The more philosophical point, I won't belabor this because it's philosophical, I suppose. We already said that majority groups define minorities as really all the same, but in fact, it's not the case. We all have multiple identities. And that's where the term in the context of diversity intersectionality came from. But even beyond that, we all have multiple identities. I'm a father, I'm a professor, I'm a husband, I'm a podcaster, I'm a writer, I'm a friend. We all have that list. Sometimes other people try to define your identity and they do it sometimes without even knowing. I personally hate when anyone tries to do that or I see someone try to do that. Hate's a bad word, a strong word, but I feel strongly about it. I don't think any one of us should allow anyone else to define our identity or identities and the mix of identities. On any given day out of the 10 identities that I have, I might pay more attention to, or they might be more relevant to my life, two or three of them at any given day. But that's also okay. I'm allowed to do that. So that's something to watch out for. Now, it's a philosophical point. So I don't know if you have a reaction to it or a point of view on it, but I really think that's something that, especially younger people that are building their brand, if you will, you don't want somebody, it happened to me early in my career. So it's something I've learned from. You don't want other people to define who you are and what you can do and what your identity or identities are. That's for you to do. And you're allowed to change it without notice anytime as well. I couldn't agree more. I absolutely agree. And part of 
others defining your identity is the stigma or the assumptions and the bias around that too. So, oh yeah, she's a mom. She's going to have to leave early or maybe she's not going to work as hard. And we know that that's not true, but suddenly based on your identity or how someone is defining it and prioritizing it, they're also making assumptions about it. And so you should be able to lead as did and define that and own it for yourself. Why do women in 2022 continue to get paid less than men for the same work? The number I saw was 82%, which is an average bill vary. It happens and it happens and it keeps happening. In a way, I don't understand it. In a way, of course, it's easy to understand what discrimination is and what deeply seated long traditions might be. We all kind of understand that. We don't accept it. But still, and I keep hearing these stories, it's not going away. It's not. It is discouraging if that is the truth. I testified in front of Congress back in 2019, I guess. And one of the representatives on the Small Business Committee asked me the same question. Well, it's so it's a nuanced question. So why does this happen? It could happen for a multitude of different reasons. Starting out your first job, the candidates, you have a, a woman and a man, they're offered $20,000. But also, I'll take it. And the guy's like, ah, let me negotiate. I want twenty two. And the person's like, okay, you get 22. So, and that's just one situation. It could be a manager who, yeah, really build a rapport with you. I see a lot of myself in you, that mini me syndrome. You're great. I see the potential. Let's pay you more. You know, I'm going to pay you based on your potential. And the men are typically given promotions and jobs based on their potential, whereas women is based on your results. And so you have to cross the finish line before you're recognized for it instead of being in the race. And someone's like, oh yeah, they're totally going to win. It could be just so many different micro small factors across your career that influence how much you get paid. So when you have a multitude of influences there, well, then what's the solution? Um, the solution is transparency. If you have set pay bands and set criteria for how those pay bands are met, and if you have transparency around that, if you level sets, that's really important. We saw Salesforce had actually internal employees who advocated for pay transparency and the level set. And they did that. When they did that, they saw that, yes, there was a pay gap internally. And they constantly have to reassess that on an ongoing basis because it doesn't automatically get solved and everything's great. As you bring in new employees, as you're doing more promotions, you have to constantly evaluate that. So why are women paid less than men? I mean, it's systemic. It's who's in power now. When you look at management, 17% of women are senior leaders at the manager level. I want to say it's like 30, 35% are women. And we each have a lot of power. If we're hiring someone, if we're part of that hiring team, if we are indicating, here's my budget for races and who am I going to give it to? If we are acknowledging and amplifying someone's work, or we have a lot of power that goes into ultimately how much money gets into their pocket. And so being intentional individually, it's companies creating such systems and structures, transparency, and a commitment to ongoing work around that. I think this point about transparency, as you describe it, is really a genius idea because there are so many, and you mentioned a bunch of them already, there's so many reasons why, with people not even knowing they're doing it, that lead to men getting paid more than women for the same job. I mean, you mentioned some of them and there's no doubt a lot of that. It's actually hard to think about how to regulate or fix all of those because there's probably going to be another one and another one. But then if you say, okay, we're going to work on that. It's not that we're going to ignore that. But now with transparency, we could say, okay, well, here are what the numbers look like. And then we can make an adjustment in management research. There are various approaches to this type of problem, not about compensation for men versus women, but as a category where 
you decide what do you want to provide oversight? Do you want to provide oversight over behavior of what people are doing or on outcomes or the results? There's arguments made for each one in different situations. One might make more sense than the other. But in this situation, it sounds like the oversight should be happening for the outcomes. In other words, looking at what through transparency, what people are getting paid. And you could try to do the oversight, if you will, or the interventions on all the behaviors. But it strikes me that there are so many. I mean, there are things you can still do. You can train people or women to be better at negotiation or to know they even could do that. And over time, as you have more women as role models, it's easier to say, oh, this is a mini me and it turns out to be a woman. That's the boss that's hiring and not a man. There's a lot of things like that you can do. But I really like the transparency idea. And I just wanted to highlight it because it's just very consistent with good logic. Well, and I'll take transparency one a step further, which is within the workforce. Like we can talk with each other about how much we're making and what that looks like. And I talk to my friends about it all the time. And I recognize maybe one has a bigger P&L or in a different industry that made me more. But now I know and I have that information and I can make the best decisions for myself. I was on a panel at South by with someone who is in the military. And he talked about you have this massive employer, the U.S. military, and they have set tiers. Like within this tier, if you accomplish X, Y, Z, this is your title. This is your rank. This is how much you get paid. So it's consistent across the board. And there's things I think we can learn across different sectors about how to do that. In New York City, we're about to implement. So we had been one of the first cities alongside Boston uh, to implement the don't ask Hey, Bill, I don't know the correct terminology where you don't ask a candidate how much you're currently making. All That's right. what do you right. want to make. But if you ask them, well, what do you make today? Then that can start to feed into that pay gap. Now taking it a step further, they want all employers to post jobs with the salary included in the job and be transparent for, you know, hey, this is the job we're hiring for. Here's the salary. You know what that range is. You don't feel like you're going in without knowing. Uh-huh. There's a lot of pushback on that. It was supposed to be implemented in, I think, Q2 of 2022. And there's some pushback, so I don't know what will happen there. But those things are happening. Let me ask you a question about an issue that I've heard from other men, and I'm sure you've heard it too, and that some senior executives that are men are a little bit reticent to mentor women. And this is partly an outgrowth of the so-called Me Too movement. But they're afraid of any perceived microaggressions, any perceptions that maybe they're not behaving the right way. It wouldn't be unusual, for example, take someone out for dinner to talk about their career and their life. And is that being perceived in a way that would be inappropriate in the environment we're in today? So there's actually people are talking about that. Now, of course, one reaction is that's just a cop out. You could do better than that. But it's real for these people. They're not bad people. That's what they're saying. So I know you've dealt with it. You've talked about it because it has to have come up. But I'm curious about what your advice to men would be in that regard. <laughs> Let it loose. We can take it. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're concerned, maybe there's some self-reflection you need to do there. But there's so many ways to approach this, right? If you maybe are appropriate to take someone out to dinner, I mean, would you take a female platonic friend or your daughter? Like it's a meal in a public space, but you could always, hey, would love to get together. We can meet for coffee. We can do a Zoom or I would love to take you out to dinner, like whichever works best for you. Give the option. Let that mentee or a sponsor be able to direct based on how she's comfortable. I am concerned. I mean, in the Me Too movement, if you've really read some of these stories, I mean, it's, it's egregious and it's obvious in many cases. Um, but I think as humans, 
always best intent, always hold yourself accountable, create trust and lines of communication in option for different ways to communicate and to connect. Even back to what you were talking about, a good leader is you understand the nuances of the people that you work alongside of and their comfort level with various scenarios. I mean, I do struggle with the idea that because in a heterosexual, heteronormative world in male and female, and suddenly there has to be some romantic tension there because I've worked alongside I've been my entire life and that has not been the case. And that really phenomenal male mentors and sponsors who helped me get where I am today. And there was never that underlying sexual tension or inappropriateness would be a bigger disservice to shy away from those relationships because you're worried about impropriety. And then how does that not just impact a mentee, but impact your direct reports and impact the people you work alongside of and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. So to the other men, I would just say that. Most respectful interpretation of that is you want to do right and not put your foot in the mouth or make anyone else feel uncomfortable. We all face that, you know, as a white heterosexual woman, I also am think about the people I work alongside of and I would not want to say or do anything that would be offensive, that would be inappropriate, that would make them uncomfortable. So the most respectful interpretation is the intent is you want to be a good ally, you want to be a good mentor, you want to make sure you're setting that relationship up for success. And I think it's admirable and I think it's something we should all think about in the workforce of the people we work alongside of and we support and being intentional about making sure we're mentoring people who don't look like us and that don't have the advantages we've had. But I do think that as long as we are behaving appropriately, which we're all professionals, then the best thing is just to kind of maybe let that mentor lead and where she's comfortable, but don't, please don't stop supporting women in the workforce and helping them to rise up. I want to ask you one other, none of these are quick questions because there's so many layers to them. You asked about students and a number of my students have talked about imposter syndrome and the ones that talk about it. So in one of the courses I teach, students do regular blog posts and I give them different prompts. And I think the prompt that really triggered a lot of conversation on this was when you're graduating, because these are seniors, the last term of business school, actually. What are you most concerned about as you re-enter the workforce? Because they all work four or five, six years already before going back for an MBA. What are you most concerned with? And there was a lot of different things, you know, how do you build relationships with colleagues when everything's remote on Zoom and et cetera. But there were a couple of women that brought up imposter syndrome, and then you can comment on other people's blogs. And all of a sudden that became a thing that people were talking about. And the conversation was that it was very clearly something that was felt more deeply by women and people of color. Is that something you see? And what suggestions and recommendations do you have? Probably something that comes up in some of these discussion groups as well, I'd have to believe. But if there's one or two things you would suggest for someone who's 30 years old, let's say, that's feeling that, that has no reason to feel that because they're really great, but they do, what they could do about it. Yeah, it feels like we're going to come full circle on this conversation. <laughs> you know, like two reasons where I see ways in which I see imposter syndrome. One is Whitney Johnson, who's fantastic, and she has written some great books. One of the things she talks about is the S curve, right? Within our life, and particularly within our careers, we're, we're constantly on the S curve. You start something new, you're kind of moving up, you're learning, you're drinking from the fire hose, you don't know everything you're supposed to know, but you're they kind of move up the S and you hit your stride. And you're like, okay, I got this. I'm a master that I'm doing fantastic. And then you get to the top of the S and it's time to jump off, go to that next risk, that next challenge. You have to move on. 
And so when we mentioned earlier, where women are oftentimes, you know, when we apply for jobs or when we approach projects that's based on, okay, I've checked all the boxes and got this. We kind of want to be at that top of the S where we've hit our stride and we feel super confident in it. Whereas men, it's more based on potential. They're moving up the S, but they say, okay, yeah, so I know I can make it there and I'm going to be great. So I feel good. Maybe that's societal conditioning and how we've been raised. And it's deeply ingrained gender from the earliest of ages. But I do think that's a contributor to imposter syndrome. That is when you're, you're still learning, you're still growing. I mean, that's part of being in the workforce. We're always challenging ourselves and taking on new projects, new roles. But when you don't check all the boxes, you feel like an imposter. Another thing is back to the bias and bias in the workforce. One of my first 360 reviews as a new manager is managing a big sales team. My boss said I needed a thicker skin and someone I was managing said I was too mean. And it was too so mean. To me, because I was making him his goals and holding him accountable to it. So it was very confusing to me as a manager. And on one hand, I was told I wasn't being hard enough. And the other hand, I was told I was being too hard. And I just felt like an imposter. Like, I don't know how to succeed at this if I'm getting conflicting messages and it's all over the place. But in the workforce, when you think about this, if you are, say, the only woman of color in a meeting in a room, you could feel like an imposter. I'm the only one who looks like me here. Like, do I belong here? What is going on? Maybe unconscious or conscious, but there's many ways in terms of the teams we're working alongside, how they communicate, how we amplify each other's voices and acknowledge each other's contributions. You feel like you don't belong. You feel like an imposter. And that's where we have to really focus, again, more on that diversity, inclusion, how we manage. That manager is not like, I expect you to communicate to me in my way instead of your way. But the biggest advice I would say when overcoming that is to have a network. And I can't stress that enough. It's helped me a lot. I mean, I'll be honest, I felt like a complete imposter trying to pivot and lead a company during a pandemic. And oftentimes it was, what am I doing here? Can I do this? And I leaned on my friends, my network, my peers who were doing similar things. And just in talking about it, normalizing it, knowing that we're all struggling with this, being able to encourage each other and say, no, I just saw that you did this and that's amazing. You accomplished so much. It really helps to combat that imposter syndrome to know, because we feel imposter when we're singularly focused on ourselves. And then when you can lean into others and support and normalize what you're going through and how you're progressing, it really helps to combat that. So encourage everyone to build your networks and to lean into that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. No matter what it is, I don't know why. Maybe there's something about our evolutionary development that led us. We think we're the only one, but we're never the only one. It's not the case. And finding other people that are dealing with whatever that same issue is of whatever type really does help. Okay, we've been going for about an hour. Time for the last question to wrap us up. It's my favorite little advice question, which I've actually been asking for some advice along the way in a variety of things. But this is advice to yourself. If you could magically go back to when you were 20 years old, doing whatever you were doing. And you could lean over to the 20-year-old Christy Wallace and say, I got something you need to know about. I got something you need to think about. There's one thing you want to learn. This is it. What would it be? What would be that advice to yourself? I mean, should I say like cryptocurrency and NFTs or? (laughs) (laughs) Invest in crypto. That's very good. It would be like a back to the future moment where it's like, okay, you're not the winning our races, the winning school. I would just say, always be curious. 
always be curious. And what I mean by that is just continue to learn and grow as a human, as a leader, and look out for inspiration everywhere in life. Think about different industries, different functions, different parts of business. And where that helps you will help me is as a leader, understanding all the different facets of your business helps you to be a better leader. As an individual contributor, understanding how business operates, what are the business goals, what's happening in other industries, what's interesting to you, what are the trends that helps you be better at what you're doing. We oftentimes feel, and I think the nature of business sets us up for this, that you kind of come in, put your head down and you do what they tell you and you eat there and do it the way they tell you and you keep moving. But having that curiosity, looking outside of just the day-to-day, open up worlds of possibilities and, and serve you throughout your career. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Putting your head down and just working, maybe that worked a hundred years ago in a factory. It's not the way modern work operates. Yes, you got to do it, whatever your challenge is, but the people that get ahead are ones that do what they're supposed to do and then do something else because nobody thought about it. And that comes from curiosity. Takes some courage also, of course, but it comes from curiosity. Christy, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast, sharing your wisdom, your experience, your ideas. I learned a lot and I found it really, really interesting. I know my listeners will as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please consider giving us a five-star review and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.